Howdy, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. We are celebrating Quentin Tarantino's birthday that happened this past weekend, and we are analyzing one of his greatest films, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, we will be sharing little tidbits and, you know, our own critiques on the movie, as well as actually ranking Tarantino's top 10 greatest films that he's ever done. So hope you enjoy, and thank you for tuning in to our first episode. Appreciate it. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. This is the inaugural podcast of the Boomer and Gen Z. My name's Garth Patterson. This is my son, Liam Patterson. And just like he uh, indicated, we're going to be uh, critiquing, talking about, sharing tidbits about Quentin Tarantino, one of his greatest movies, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, later we'll be ranking all of his films. As people know, um, Quentin Tarantino has only made, actually, to be such a prolific uh, director, he's only made, how many films has he made so far? Uh, he's made 10 films. 10 films, so we'll be ranking all 10 of those, and I think he said that uh, he's not going to be making any more movies. Um, I believe so, that's yeah. what he said. So, um, we really don't believe that, he's, he's, too, he's too prolific and he's, he's too gifted, uh, he may go off into other mediums like uh, TV and... and um, I think he's thinking of doing a sci-fi of uh, Star Trek. Yeah, he, supposedly he wrote a whole script to that, so we'll see. We'll see. Rated R script, which is even better, in my opinion. Oh, wow. That's all we need is Captain Kirk with a rated R script. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, well, we start today with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think, um, you know, this film, music you know, for the soundtrack that he picked, uh, the... Um, the topic that he picked, um, it really fits Quentin Tarantino to a T. You know, he's he's really uh, highlighting America in the late 1960s. Um, the um, the whole soundtrack is to me, it's one of the best soundtracks I've ever heard in a in a, in a movie film. Absolutely. And uh, he's taken one of the most um, you know he's taken one of the most famous murders um, in our history, and he's really creating a metaphor for uh, the end of uh, free love, uh, flower power, you know, the 60s, the hippie movement. Uh, and he's making quite a critique on that, you know, for some of we look at uh, to be so liberal and, and um, you know, uh, anti-conservative. He really does a film here that's uh, kind of almost, you'd say, like a conservative Republican film, you know, the way his portrayal of the hippies and, and the main characters and how they uh, view, you know, the uh, the youth in and around, uh, uh, well, the Manson family and the Manson family murders. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Uh, I would say for me, looking at this movie, it's definitely Tarantino's most sentimental because of the fact that he handles the whole Sharon Tate uh, thing with, you know, such kind of gracefulness and appreciation. Um, and to think that Tarantino, I don't think he glorifies violence, but a lot of people kind of uh, criticize him for glorifying violence in his movies. So you would think that with the whole Manson thing, he would kind of go to like, you know, outer space with it. But uh, he did it in a way that was beautiful and gave justice to the whole kind of scenario. And that's why I, I really enjoyed the film totally. And what my dad's saying about the whole him looking at it kind of conservatively, especially towards the whole hippie kind of counterculture, uh, I feel like he's always done that in his movies. He's always kind of critiqued hippies, like even in Pulp Fiction and like Jackie Brown. 
Um, you know, with uh, Fonda's character, she's kind of like looked down upon. And yeah, so I would say that was, he's always kind of kept that mentality throughout all of his movies, that continuity, that kind of mindset. Well, you brought up a good point and an adjective that I would agree with. You called it a beautiful movie. And I think people would say, you know, you know, you see what happens at the end with, um, you know, what happens to uh, Tex and the uh, Susan Atkins and uh, the other uh, killer. Um, you know, um, how does that make it a, a beautiful movie? But in reality, you know, Quentin Tarantino uses two fictional characters in Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton. Um, Rick Dalton, who's supposed to be a, a fading movie actor whose most popular um, acting um, credential is a, is a 50s uh, Western episodic uh, serial. And uh, now he's, he's, you know, he's kind of playing out the string and Pilots is the heavy and uh, he had what I guess can be termed a failed movie career. And Cliff Booth, his best friend, who's had played his uh, his body double in the last two years of Bounty Law, which is the fictional TV show uh, that he was in before he went into movies, and is still their best friends. And and um, Cliff, you know, um, drives for him in a pretty funny uh, uh, segue because uh, Rick Dalton's a heavy drinker, smoker, and can no longer drive himself. So Cliff serves as his personal assistant and best friend and, and driver. But uh, the characterization of Sharon Tate, I think, is central in this. She doesn't dominate the movie. It's played incredibly well by Margot Robbie. Uh, just a, a wonderful portrayal of Sharon Tate because, as we know, Sharon Tate was an incredibly good person, you know. It's so even though Sharon Tate's not, doesn't dominate the movie, and really the movie is dominated by his fictional characters, Quentin Tarantino uses those fictional characters to, sh you know, give us a great feel for uh, what the late 1960s in Hollywood was all about, um, and uh, but also to appropriately punish those who really weren't punished the way they should have been for the type of heinous murder and crimes they committed on those poor people. So, uh, and I see that as a theme in Quentin's movies. You know, when you see Django, when you see Pulp Fiction, when you see um, you know, like Glorious Bastards, you know, he's he's really punishing through, as you said, I, I agree with you. You know, people say he might be a violent filmmaker and he shows, shows a lot of violence. Does he glorify violence? Um, or does he use it as a tool to, you know, metaphorically uh, exact retribution on people who aren't nice and probably been people who deserve it, whether they be Nazis, whether they be the Manson family, you know, whether they be slave owners. You know, I, I, I agree. Actually, uh, there's a funny interview with him where he has to defend himself against a woman on Fox News back when uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 was uh, released. And she's she's kind of mocking him. Like, a lot of people say that you're a genius, but, you know, like, I say that you glorify violence and that, you know, how are you empowering women? Because he said, I, I'm empowering women through this film and everything else. And I think... He uses violence in that sense where, yeah, you're right, Met metaphorically speaking, he gives retribution to what needs to be given, you know, in terms of the whole Sharon Tate injustice and the whole Nazi thing, you know. We we all, let's be real, we all wanted to see Hitler's face get blown off, you know. <laughs> we all wanted to see Goebbels die in that fire along with all of the other horrible Nazi pigs. So... I just think he uses violence in that cathartic way where we can all kind of connect with it even if it's 
brutal, even if it's, you know, disturbing. And I think that's what he uses brilliantly. That I think that's what makes him a great filmmaker is that we can all connect. Well, and I think, too, it's almost caricaturish. These yeah, people absolutely. die in ways that are... It's almost comical. Yeah, it's almost comical, and it's almost like you're sitting there going, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, these people got what they deserved. And, 100%. Um, you know, as you're going through the film, I, I talk about Margot uh, Robbie's uh, performance here as Sharon Tate. Um, and Tarantino's brilliant use of, of a soundtrack. And I, I go to a scene, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie, where uh, she's going to the uh, movie lot. Um, I believe it's the movie lot, right? She, she goes uh, to buy a book for her husband, Roman Polanski, and um, she ends up stopping to see a movie. And um, she picks up a hitchhiker, a young woman who's just starting life. And the young woman's just talking away in the car. And Sharon Tate is patiently listening to her and laughing and they're having a good time. And how easily she connects to the young girl, which definitely is, you know, Quentin Tarantino wants to show you what Sharon Tate's character was. And, uh, that, and of course, they're playing, um, you know, the circle game, um, which is uh, Joni Mitchell. Um, you know, written song. Uh, I believe it's Buffy St. Marie is the one who sings it. And the circle game is a, is a, uh, is a song about growing up and, and, you know, from a young child into adulthood. And that's what Sharon Tate is on the cusp of. That's what's stolen from her. I mean, I mean, so, you know, you see her with this young woman and instantly connecting in only a, a minute's worth of, of movie. And um, it's, the young girl goes off to probably have a full life and there's Sharon you know going off and we know what happens to her you know so I, that was a real effective scene if you're going to really convey someone's personality in such a short time it takes a filmmaker of Quentin's um, expertise you know, expertise and largesse you know to do that so with Quentin um, yeah another thing about the movie I think Quentin wanted to make this kind of in the same vein as a Rio Bravo when you're watching it you're you're watching it to feel relaxed and to hang out with the characters, and I thought he executed that beautifully. Because of course you want to hang out with Rick Dolan, you want to hang out with, you know, Cliff Booth, and uh, even with uh, Margaret uh, Sharon Tate, Margaret Robbie's portrayal, you want to hang out with her and Jay Sabring. Yes, you know it's that kind of environment that he builds and creates. Well, you bring up Jay Sabring, which is another, uh, you know, it's another good uh, topic to bring up. Quentin has a way of conveying. Who he, you know, who he, I don't want to say who he likes and dislikes, but, you know, who he has sympathy for. Of course, Sebring was a famous hairstylist who was engaged to <clears throat> Sharon Stone and stayed best friends with her even after she married Roman Polanski. Um, and he comes off as a, a great friend and a great uh, character in the movie uh, who stays with her. And, and even though in the movie version of the Sharon Tate, of course, she doesn't die, um, you know, the, the, perpetrators are thwarted by uh cliff and and rick dalton um you know sebring in real life um gave his life you know um unfortunately it, it didn't stop sharon from being killed but he uh he gave his life trying to defend her and you know quentin's kind of conveying or showing you people that he likes in the movie Fictionally and non-fictionally, um, hmm. you know, you see that with how he portrays, you know, Steve McQueen in the movie. Uh, Steve McQueen, you know, he um, has a couple of uh, almost dream sequences where Rick Dalton, 
you know, if there's a fantasy of him playing Steve McQueen's The Great Escape, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and then him at the uh, Playboy Mansion talking about Sharon Tate, <laughs> but he, you can kind of get the sense that, you know, Roman Polanski's not his favorite, you know, he, he likes the Steve McQueen. J.C. Bring is um, a person that he, you know, he, he does, um, you know, respect, and that comes across, even though J.C. Bring doesn't die in the movie. We know what J.C. Bring did uh, in the night of the murder, so we know. And just little things like that. He he seems to convey those. Yeah, <laughs> those he does things. that very well. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I first watched it, I remember like how blown away I was with it because, to be completely honest, I had no idea what was going to happen. I didn't know how he was going to handle the whole situation, and I thought when I was first watching it, it came wicked late in the movie. And of course, it does come like in the last 15, 20 minutes. But um, yeah, he got his point across in that last 15, 20 minutes uh, very effectively. And that whole end sequence with the gates opening, it's obviously metaphorical to him. The gates opening to heaven, at least to me, it's the gates opening up to some kind of heaven where Sharon is or whatnot, and cinema heaven. And uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful ending. Of course, we know as the audience what happened in real life, so it makes it that much more poignant that that ending is what it is. And uh, Leo, let's give Leo his props. Leo was phenomenal in that role. You know, it's a very hard role to play too. Like, yeah, I can say in this movie, we know that um, you know Leo was nominated. He didn't win the Oscar. Um, you know, uh, Brad Pitt did win the Oscar. Margot Robbie didn't. I don't know if Margot Robbie was nominated or not. Uh, the acting in this movie is uh, truly spectacular. Um, you know, I, I, uh, you mentioned the ending. I mean, for the people watching out there who, who may not have seen the movie yet or what we're talking about with the plot is, you know, the movie does center around, you know, Rick Dalton starring in a new pilot and again, you know, uh, being confronted with you know, really the end of his acting career. and Which happened to a lot of uh, film actors at that time, which yeah. makes it... That, that was done funny. very well because yeah. Quentin definitely does have some reverence, especially for the... You know, so they talked about episodic television. This is kind of like a, a... You know, he starred in what was called Bounty Law, which was kind of like a Have Gun Will Travel with Boone, you know, the famous actor who played him. And and these guys, and that scene with Al Pacino, if you want to go into it a little yeah. bit, where he goes into how an actor is marginalized yep. to the point where he's actually kicked out of Hollywood. Yeah, he's squeezed he out. Or, it, so. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah, because that's exactly what happened to a lot of those actors. It's fun because that almost could have happened to Clint Eastwood. If, because that, almost, that did happen to Clint because Clint went out to Italy and made those spaghetti oh, westerns. Yeah. He came back, of course, became the megastar that he is today. But uh, well, That's a good point funny. because, of course... Let's talk about Clint Eastwood, who starred in uh, Rawhide in the '60s and was almost out of acting, same way that Rick Dalton is. And then Rick Dalton's given a chance to go to Italy to make films, which he does. He goes out and makes four films, which is what Clint Eastwood did, which resurrected his career. And um, you know what happens in the movie to to save Sharon and uh, you know um, J.C. Bring and and uh, the Folger woman and and the boyfriend is that um, they mistakenly go into uh, Dalton's house when he's just returned from Italy with, with Cliff Booth and, uh, and um, Rick Dalton's new wife. And, um, you know, they, 
of course, they die very violently in a very caricaturous way, but it's it's uh, it's I, satisfying. I, it's very satisfying, and I don't know if you would call it so. You know, when you you know, it's, it's choreographed so perfectly. Yes, the music yeah. is so great. Well, and, that's 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 totally a testament to his filmmaking. Is that everything is so precise? It's like listening to a Rush song. You know, you're listening to Geddy Lee's bass guitar and the intricacies and the the whole how. Rush is so precise and on so on the know, and that's exactly how Tarantino is with his filmmaking. He's so precise. When you when you want to feel the pain, you feel the pain, kind of thing. Or like him with his food, you know, you feel hungry when he does food scenes. You everything about it. So yeah, he's a very specific kind of director, which is why I think we love him. All the nuances. Well, so. we know that Quentin Tarantino has a, you know, one of his one of the most influential directors for him is Sergio Leone, the great. Italian Western filmmaker, of course, did one of the greatest Westerns and movies of all time. Most people know him for his spaghetti Westerns with Clint Eastwood, but he did do Once Upon a Time in the West. And Once Upon a... Uh, well, I believe he did Once Upon a Time in America as well. And he used Ennio Marcone, Marconi as uh, his... Um, as the person who did his soundtracks, the legendary music composer, and um, who Quentin Tarantino has worked with quite a bit. And um, you know, funny story. That's a, that's a funny story between him and uh, Morricone, because Morricone, uh, Tarantino doesn't use original musical scores often, and the only one I think he did was for uh, Hateful Eight, and that's when he used Morricone officially to make the and compose the soundtrack. And I guess he only gave him like two or three days, if that. And of course, Morricone's a professional, so yeah. he didn't take that. You know, too kind. Have good things to say about Quentin, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, yeah, exactly what my father was saying, how uh, Leone definitely had a huge influence on Tarantino's filmmaking, and of course, Morricone is a centerpiece to that because of the whole music and the iconic, you know, just everything. Well, Liam mentions the end, and we're both big fans of uh, Twilight Zone, and maybe we'll discuss some of their, the great episodes in a future podcast. But um, he uses a lot of the techniques, or a lot of... Uh, you know, alluding, allusion to, um, you know, the Once Upon a Time in the West at the end, and Twilight Zone, I, I would have to say, too, because at the end, Sharon Tate's voice, so at the end, Sebring, at the gated fence where the Tate residence is, uh, Rick Dalton is out there after Cliff Booth gets sent to the hospital, and when you see what happens in the fight, you know, in, in the scene where uh, they end up killing the three <laughs> intruders. Um, you know, Cliff Booth is sent to the hospital. His wife is in bed, <laughs> sedated, and he's outside, and Sebring is at the gate, looking through the gate, asking him, you know, um, what happened, you know? And then Rick Dalton's a character that doesn't have a lot of, you know, he has a lot of insecurities. He's, we can tell he's a great actor. Uh, mm. Tarantino has him acting as Leon. Not DiCaprio would, but watching yeah. him act in this pilot, and he's like, he's phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, you know, And it's you're so like, true. wow, imagine if people actually saw this. But so when he sees Sebring, he realizes that Sharon Tate and Sebring, they know who he is, which mm. shocks him, right? He's, yeah. he's kind of looked at them as kind of aloof and whatnot, but they know who he is, what he's been in. Polanski, yeah. And, um, you know, gee, Sebring asks him, you know, what the heck happened here? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and he has some funny lines, you know, about uh, what they ended up doing, but. One of the things that happens is Sharon uh, calls on the loudspeaker there, and it's almost like a ghost. That's what it feels yeah, like. Yeah, totally. Her name is a ghost, and she's saying, um, you know, when she finds out it's Rick Dalton, she's 
hi, neighbor, you know, and she invites him up for a drink. And then Tarantino uses, if you saw Once Upon a Time in uh, the West, it's the use of a crane to uh, show a camera moving up and above the, the cast. And it really gives you that ethereal feeling as they do. And as Dalton and Sebring are walking up the, you know, go through the gate and they're walking, you said it, it has a very heavenly ethereal yeah, feeling. Yeah, ethereal type of And when Sharon comes out, it's what you wish you could see. It's what you wish could have happened, where she's still alive. And, and Dalton goes in to meet her and her friends. And, um, you know, everything is made right in the world of Quentin Tarantino mm. and <laughs> the retribution. Uh, I'd like to definitely hit on there's a scene in the, in the movie uh, where uh, Cliff uh, Booth uh, picks up a hitchhiker who he's been flirting with on and off in the movie. Yeah. Uh, is it uh, McDowell? Uh, yeah, it's Andy, uh, McDowell's, Andy McDowell's daughter, daughter Margaret uh, Qualley. <laughs> she's uh, wonderful in it, but she, uh, he picks her up, and, um, and actually they end up going to the Spawn Ranch where the Manson family lived, and of course she thinks that uh, Cliff Booth is the perfect person to meet, you know, mm. uh, Charles Manson, and she's kind of thinking she's recruiting him. In reality, he's going there to see if, um, if if the person that owns Bond Ranch, yeah. his old friend, is being taken advantage of on the on the, you know, on the ranch by these hippies, and uh, that's quite that scene. It's a is, it's a phenomenal scene. Yeah, it really. Uh, you know, when you see that movie for the first time, there's a lot of tension in that scene, isn't mm. there? You yeah, know? well, yeah. Tarantino's a master of building the suspense. He's like Hitchcock um, in that way. Yeah, with all the hippies kind of rallying up, uh, it's very disconcerting. You know, he goes there to the ranch with her, and, you know, she's Charlie's not on the ranch, and many of the, uh, the members are off the ranch, but there are several that are there, and, um, you know, he... Um, you know, when it becomes obvious that Cliff is there to check up on um, the ranch owner, um, played brilliantly by Bruce Dern, by yeah. the way, um, things become very dark very quickly, um, you know, and um, as he goes in there, and there's a scene with Dakota Fanning, who plays Squeaky, who would, people might remember her later on, she tried to kill Gerald Ford, uh, you know, years after the murder, <laughs> just one of the kooks that were on the ranch. You know, um, and, uh, you know, he, he does see that, uh, you know, he's, he's not, he is being taken advantage of, but it's something that he desires there, I guess, because he has this odd relationship going on. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, he's being manipulated. Yeah. yeah. But when he leaves that ranch, what do you think about that scene? So when he, when, he uh, when Brad Pitt leaves, yeah, when he leaves the the little street house at the top of the ranch and walks back. Well, uh, let's just say another satisfying scene. Um, yeah, I mean that's exactly how you would think those hippies. Well, not those hippies. I don't mean it like that. But you know, like the well, Manson, the Manson followers. family hippies. Yeah, the <laughs> Manson family hippies would react. You know, very sinister kind of. We're all um, sitting out on a line outside. Ready? Do you think he's either gonna die or he's gonna have to like kill a few people to get out of there? And of course, the music is playing right along with it, and they're all yelling at him, and he's walking slowly to his car. Right. right? Yeah, <laughs> and it's just well, what he does. Yeah, what he does to get himself out is great. You know, that's uh, he's a great character, and that was a rightfully deserved Oscar won by uh, Brad Pitt for sure. What we were talking before about, now, I don't know this for a fact, but you know, Quentin Tarantino. 
I think takes a little swipe at Bruce Lee here. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, Cliff is is uh, you know is um, used as a stunt double on um, a Green Hornet episode, and of course Bruce Lee famously played Cato, yeah, and is one of the series leads, and you know um, the uh, the head stunt supervisor is Kurt Russell, who's yeah, you know, using Kurt Russell, who's in several of, of yeah Tarantino's films. Yeah. Tarantino is. One of those directors in the mold of an Alfred Hitchcock, or, or, uh, I guess more clear, uh, more appropriately, like a John Ford, actors that use, um, you know, the same the, actors, same character actors, yeah. uh, over and over. And Kurt Russell does; he narrates parts of the movie, and he's saying he's the head stunt supervisor, and his wife, his wife. So the legend of Cliff Booth is, is that he killed his wife, you know, and. Uh, and you can see Cliff Booth is a is a army hero, a, a stuntman, good looking. You know he's had a a, a checkered past that we don't really know about. Uh, they show a quick scene where his wife is insufferable, and they're on a boat in the middle of nowhere, and she's just uh, you know berating him on and on, and it gives you the sense that yeah he might have yeah. done the deed, you know. <laughs> so, but uh, you know they have a great uh, scene with Cliff Booth and Bruce Lee, where Bruce Lee is regaling. Um, you know, all the people on set during a break of, you know, how um, frustrating it is to be a martial artist and you can't, you know, really do what you yeah, want to do. Want to do when you're in these uh, martial arts fights as compared to the great boxers. And, you know, he's asked if he can beat Sonny Liston. He said, uh, you know, well, yeah, of course I would kill him. And that's and Cliff Booth can't take yeah. it at that point. And then, yeah. Yeah, what he does there. That fight scene is so great. It's, it's a great fight scene, yeah. <laughs> and Tarantino, uh, to defend that, because they thought he portrayed Bruce Lee kind of in a negative way. And, of course, Tarantino responds, you know, I I did think he was arrogant. People said he was arrogant, so that's exactly why I If you ever but... watch an interview with Bruce Lee... No, Bruce Lee was an awesome guy, yeah. Every t- no. Everything I listened to, you know, watched. He was, you know, and he is iconic. He's a legend. But whenever you watched Bruce Lee, he had that kind of cockiness and that kind of self-confidence that is portrayed in this character. Right, right. And, um, but of course, Booth ends up, you know, kind of best, not kind of best. Yeah, throwing well, him into yeah, a car, overtly. Throwing yeah. him into the car of, uh, you know, Kurt Russell's wife, <laughs> who kicks him off the set. But, uh, uh, but we see Bruce Lee teaching Sharon Tate you know, martial arts for her movie, her last movie that she did with, with, um, Dean Martin, I think it was called The Wrecking Ball, and that's the movie that, it's like the American James Bond, right, that's what he was, yeah, well, yeah, he had an ongoing series of movies as that character, Dean Martin did, I was mentioning, we were watching the movie, and, and, um, I believe that was Sharon Tate's last movie, and how, uh, Dean Martin was, in the last movie with her and uh, in the last movie with Marilyn Monroe, which actually Marilyn ended up not making because she was fired off the set, but they had made, you know, many scenes together. So mm, that's interesting. Yeah. So Dean Martin with uh, two of the most iconic female actresses or, you know, sex symbols of the day. And then, um, but uh, <coughs> yeah, when he, so uh, to start doing the rankings because it's already almost 30 minutes. All right. It's so. Minutes. All right. So to um, to cap off this episode, we're gonna. Well, end end it like. Okay. With a. Continue like on and then end it. Okay. Well, all right. So you know, it's, um, of course, 
I'm kind of alluding to the scene where she's in the movie theater watching herself. There's a nice little scene where she goes into a movie theater and playfully wants to go in for free because she's That's actually it, starring yeah. in it. It's a great scene. It's a nice little scene. And you say, you have, and what Tarantino does really great for this movie is you have these things concurrently happening, which is Cliff Booth's adventure on Spawn Ranch while he's, you know, waiting to go back and pick up, you know, Rick Dalton, who's starring in a pilot and... Yeah. That, that's a whole <laughs> other that incredible uh, day of uh, acting scene with uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio, and then you know it's it's Sharon Tate watching her own movie and the three come back together, and then um, you know then it's six months later because uh, Cliff Booth and and uh, Rick Dalton have gone to Italy to make Italian pictures and when they come back that was another great soundtrack you know I I never you know I I've, I've Always respected and liked the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones, really I love the Rolling gotten Stones. into them a lot over the last couple of years, but they have a great song in there, you know. And Tarantino does this too as a director. Uh, out of time, you know. They yeah, come back. he he uses songs yeah. to kind of portray what's going to happen or forebode yeah. kind of things that are going to happen totally. And they come back on the great. date that she's yep. got mur- murdered in real life. They, so they come back from Italy, and it's that night that the uh, the murders are supposed to happen. So. It's little Easter eggs that he leaves behind. It's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, so how would you like sum up the whole movie with with, uh, with Quentin here and his job that he did? So um, when in, I, in a very difficult, you know, like how is you have to think if you're doing a movie like this, you have to be respectful to the Tate family. Totally, know? it's and a very you, hard task. Uh, I mean, incredibly hard task as a filmmaker to kind of make a movie, especially on that, and kind of make it the way he did in this vein of not lightheartedness, but like. There were obviously humor, you know, aspects to it and everything else, and there was a vibrancy to it. So I think he knocked it out of the park. I'd give it definitely an eight point one or two out of uh, ten on my IMDb rating. Um, and yeah, I would say out of all my rankings on the Tarantino list, if I had to guess, it would be number three. Um, out of his 10. Um, so I would rank my top 10 if you don't mind right now. No, definitely. And I'll say, you know, it is my favorite Tarantino movie. People that know me or who are going to be watching this and know me are rolling their eyes. They know what I think of this movie. But no. Liam is much more a student of Tarantino's movie. So putting it third is a, is a very high watermark. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. Um, so I... <clears throat> I'm going to let you guys know right now I haven't really watched Death Proof all the way through, so I'm not really a firm kind of critic on that. Or, um, Yeah, I'm not really familiar with that familiar. one. No. Um, but, um, so I'll start number 10, Death Proof. Um, this one's kind of What would tough. be your top one? If you're going to say it once upon a time in Hollywood is your third. Well, I, I just want to, because I'm actually very passionate. This is a list I'm very passionate about because I love Tarantino films. So number nine would be, I hate to say it, but Hateful Eight, um, as much as I love it, uh, just because... Well, it does bring uh, a new light to the term oral sex. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, okay, okay. I couldn't well, get past that, by the way. It was a great movie. So the, I, so the Hateful Eight to me was a brilliant film um, on whodunit, a classic whodunit kind of thing. And it was, yeah. It was atmospheric. It was out in the snow. It was just great in that aspect. So um, it's number nine on my list. Number eight would be uh, probably Reservoir, yeah, Reservoir Dogs. So I love Reservoir Dogs. It's definitely um, eight because it was his low budget film. 
you know, he didn't really have a lot of resources to kind of do what he wanted to do, but still look at the outcome. It's one of the, it's a brilliant film. Definitely my favorite bank robbery scene, uh, bank robbery uh, movie. Um, besides Is he Dark in Day every Afternoon. one of his movies? He was in that. I remember Harvey Keitel. No, uh, Roth. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, he was. He was in he a wasn't, classic. He wasn't in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I thought he was in every one of his movies. It's you know yeah. here and there. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah. So Reservoir Dogs, great movie. Um, I would put number eight because that's how great of a director he is. You know that just shows you. Uh, number seven, I would say would be uh, Kill Bill Volume One. Um, I do love Kill Bill Volume One, but uh, yeah, Kill Bill Volume One. There's so many aspects. I mean, the it's anime. Hard. Scene, coming up with this list off the cuff. So, the, and when you love an uh, director like that, it's hard to rank, you know, on the fly. So you'll see. So uh, the anime scene in particular is one of my all-time singular scenes ever, um, just because of what he does with it. I mean, uh, and that can be done to great effect. I remember seeing that in the the was it the. Um, uh, Deathly Hallows one or two. Yeah, Deathly Hallows one. They did a great, not an anime scene, but, but it was a great an animation. animated scene uh, to convey what to see two movies that uh, that high profile use that to such great effect. Yeah, yeah, it's clever. It's well done. So, and I mean the whole premise of you know the bride getting her vengeance. I think that's awesome, and I do think it's empowering to females. So, <laughs> like, let's put that in, or else. <laughs> um, number uh, six would be uh, Jackie Brown for me. I love Jackie Brown on so many levels because I read uh, Rum Punch, and uh, that's obviously what he based off the movie on. And of course, it's Jane Greer's comeback movie, and I love Jane Greer. It's incredible, I mean, Foxy that she, Brown. That she would be a star back in the box exploitation film. Well, era. that's what makes it so brilliant. In the modern, she looks incredible. And she looks incredible, she's and she's character. in her yeah. So. I mean, there's so many great performances. Like Michael Keane, who I love, is so great in that in his role. Uh, Robert Forrester, who's like not really a well-known actor, he's in Breaking Bad, and I love him Breaking Bad. He's great in that role, and he he handles the character so great. Robert De Niro, Samuel Jackson, uh, Fonda, Bridget Fonda, who's great in that role, and they have a very disturbing scene in that role. That's you know, Quentin. Yeah, Robert De Niro. You know, might as well say because. We might not revisit this, but he, you know, she is annoying him to the point where he shoots and kills her. And we're not looking at this as a death so much. So, you know, watching the movie, you're like, God, thank God she's out of the movie. Yeah, you're yeah. not realizing, yeah, he just shot yeah, her. Yeah, he just shot her in point blank. <laughs> it's, so. it's probably not the way you want to feel about something like that. But, it, yeah, it's a... It's a great movie. It's uh, definitely Tarantino's take on mystery and also definitely Tar- it's Tarantino's take on black exploitation films. And uh, you should definitely give it a watch. Absolutely. Now, number five would be, uh, number five, ooh, <laughs> this is tough. Number five would be Pulp Fiction for me, because I know it's the cliche to say, oh, you watch Tarantino, you watch Pulp Fiction, and it's like, yeah, that's not why I'm saying it's number five, because I'm jaded by that fact. No, no, I'm, it's number five for me, because it is such a brilliant film, but, uh, it is such a brilliant film. I, there's nothing to take away. I mean, the whole story plot within itself is so innovative and original, and to think that it is done in the vein as a Pulp Fiction novel, you know, and all these novels. It's very Chris Nolan-ish. It's very. But like it, it, the whole changing of right, the uh, exactly. timelines. It's clever. The, movie. the performances are great. The writing is spectacular. The whole pop culture references, I mean, just the whole thing about it is amazing. So 
obviously, like, you can't really not. And it was the comeback of John Travolta. Exactly. And Bruce Willis, (laughs) you know, like, Bruce Willis is great in that. He's iconic. And, um, yeah, just everything about it. The the soundtrack, I mean, Tarantino's use of soundtrack is just, he's the best at it, in my opinion. Um, Yeah, he's just great at choosing the specific music that's already been pre-recorded and putting into a scene, you know? Um, uh, he's he's a master at that. So, Pulp Fiction number five. Right. So number four, Django Unchained. Now, Django Unchained was my favorite film when I first watched it in the movie theater. But then, as it like you know, he made Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and as I rewatched Kill Bill Volume Two, and I rewatched Glorious Passage with different perceptions, um, I realized those are kind of ahead of the list now. But uh, Django is a phenomenal movie on so many stand. Uh, yeah, so so many levels because of the fact that. He uses a you know a black type of superhero, let's say. Like to me, Django's a superhero. Well, he is a cause, superhero because of everything that he goes through and has to overcome and accomplish is exactly what a superhero is. He becomes almost you know invincible. He uses and a lot of uh, actors against type, and I know some directors do this, but he really does it to great effect. He does. Don Johnson plays a plantation owner in a really great scene. He has. Franco Nero, uh, who starred in the original Django, as uh, you know, has a um, cameo part in that. Um, Christoph Waltz, wonderful. Christoph I mean, Waltz. on and on the the acting performances in there, and um, you know, and again him. But Leonardo DiCaprio, how didn't he win an Oscar <laughs> just for best supporting actor for the twenty minutes he was in that movie, yeah, which was DiCaprio. insanely. Uh, incredible acting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Django is just a phenomenal movie. No flaw to it. Um, and just, yeah, the acting performances. But, I mean, it's it's definitely just an incredible film for, you know, just Django. It's just Django. I can't well, it's still, we're talking about his sort of like, I want to call it uh, revenge cinema. Yeah, you know, you totally. Have a, a powerful yeah. black man who is... Uh, exacting retribution on the the slavery system and slave owners, you know, it's, and it's with the help of Christoph Waltz becoming a bounty hunters and and um, it's just done. And again, it's the influence of of uh, you know Sergio Leone. It really has a, a feel of a spaghetti western to it, and the music and the song. You know, the there's Jango another song. movie like uh, people like to criticize Tarantino. Well, actually, there was one criticism uh, from our friend Rob. Shout out to Rob. Who said that uh, when you're watching a Tarantino film, you already know that the good guy's gonna win in the end? Which I disagree firmly because when you're watching a Tarantino movie, especially for the first time, um, you don't know what the hell's gonna happen. You know, I, at least for me, it, it is like an onion. He always Tarantino says himself that a storyline should be like an onion. It should be oh constantly unraveling until you get to the core, pretty much. Mm. And that's what he does so brilliantly. And everything is so unpredictable. So but you do get the sense that even he doesn't. No, what's going to happen? How the movie's going to end. Right, exactly. Probably makes it like, exciting for him as he's making right. these types of. And that's actually a true fact because he didn't when he was writing out *Inglorious Bastards*, he didn't know how he's going to end it yeah. by any means. You know, usually writers know how they're going to end right before they're going to even write the whole screenplay on script. Uh, but um, yeah, he had no idea. He just woke up with the idea. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. Hitler's got to die. You know, <laughs> yeah. so um, that's what makes him so authentic too. So you can't really cliche a guy like. Well, a director. Yeah, he's anything but cliche. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can't really cliche him because he's just so himself. He's such an original. So, uh, number three. So that's Django. 
And uh, number three for me would be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just because, like I said, um, it's his most sentimental. Um, I, to me, it's one of my most favorite Quentin Tarantino. It might be my favorite Quentin Tarantino ending on so many levels. Um, the acting, the soundtrack, the way he recreated that era, that moment in time. He did, uh, he did screen that for uh, Sharon Tate's sister, who said, I got to see my sister one more time. That's how good Margot Robbie's portrayal, portrayal is of Sharon Tate. That's how profound the movie was. And that's how, you know, how do you handle something like that and make it that human and, and satisfy we who are watching who know, knew what happened and and really get so much out of it? It's a masterful it is a directing master, yeah, job. Of course. Along with the, the acting performances. 100%. So that's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, number three. Number two would be... Um, Kill Bill Volume 2, um, because it's just Michael Madsen in the desert with Yuma Thurman. That whole scene with her in the casket, I mean, that is you just a, that's a directing, you can't filmmaking a scene like accomplishment. <laughs> like, it's just like, that scene alone, and then how he ties it all in the end. That's Edgar Allan really, Poe meets... Um, well, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a remarkable scene yeah. on so many levels. Uh, Yuma Thurman so great in that particular movie she's great in the first one but even in the second one it's even more physically demanding yeah. um, whose daughter by the way has a cameo as uh, yep. one of the Manson family and when she looks Who like she her runs mom away, that's, yeah. for, that's for sure it's, yeah. it's, just, it's just a phenomenal film I mean the writing her whole uh, training with uh, Pao Ming is so brilliant David done. Carradine so David Carradine as Bill perfectly cast and Super he'll, he'll do that too. You think of David Carradine, you think of John Travolta, actors who are starting to fade away from the fringe and the, and the you know, the, the psyche of the, of the population or the movie going public. And Carradine just showed everybody, you know, what he's yeah. all about. He's, you know, he's, you yeah. just need a role like for I, you to, you know, I don't think if you're a great actor, it ever goes away. It's just the opportunities go away. Right, yeah, yeah. totally, 100%. Um, so that's Kill Bill Volume 2, number two in my, for my first selection. I watched this, I remember, in the movie theater with my friends and my dad, well, yeah, my dad, uh, in Glorious Bastards. Yes, they were young when they went to see it, and when we took, when I took Liam, I knew what the movie was about because I'd seen it before, but I, my friend Bill Gonsolo took his two sons who were young at the time, and I started to sweat thinking about the end because at the end, uh, retribution is exacted on the Nazis, Hitler in particular. Yeah, that was... All I remember is looking over at the three of them, young guys, and they were going, "Yeah." So that <laughs> so was, I... uh, yeah, that was definitely the, one of the probably the most memorable uh, movie experience I had because that was like the first time I got to truly appreciate a Tarantino <clears throat> film in its whole entirety, and uh, you know just just how he crafts that movie is so beautifully done from michael fassbender's 20 minutes you know well uh, let's talk about that that it's just amazing yeah when uh fassbender is the uh is the english uh officer who goes undercover to um you know uh, in the movie he's working with bridget von hammersmark who's played by diane kruger yeah and uh pretending and um you know, posing as Jewish officers and they get exposed. And then that scene is so perfectly choreographed where 
they all end up having guns on each other. Mm, yeah. And it's the tension. Yeah, really, it's like a Mexican a, standoff. That's, that's a really Alfred Hitchcock you know, yeah. thing because we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when Cook Fuft is at the Spawn Ranch, the tension there. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to be like when he actually goes right. into um, uh, George Spawn. You don't know what's going to happen when he, um, you know, as he leaves. Uh, same thing with this, that, that scene in the uh, bar, uh, in, you know, the... It's area. it's yeah it's a remarkable film remarkably done remarkably choreographed talk about doing something justice yeah which he does well then you well. know too uh, Christoph Waltz Michael Fassbender Dan Kruger Brad Pitt speaking who's great fluent German oh, yeah, you know yeah. his actors and and English and um, you know just the guy who played Goebbels is phenomenal and so is the guy who I always forget his name he's in a Rush he's a great actor. I, Oh, yeah, so the whole segment with David Brule as the German officer um, and his fat fixation on the uh, young cinema owner, who, of course, is uh, Shoshana. And, um, the young Jewish the girl. The young Jewish girl oh, who yeah. escapes uh, Christoph Waltz's legendary and iconic introduction to the film. It is legendary and iconic. Yeah. Yeah, No, Inglorious Bastards was probably the first Tarantino movie I watched thoroughly from beginning to end, and I... I'm a latecomer to uh, Quentin Tarantino, so I have to give you credit on that. You know, I, he's always been one of your favorite directors, but um, and I've always enjoyed his movies. It was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that really came together for me. As you know, it was a subject matter I, I was kind of passionate about, knew a lot about, and love '60s music, love '60s, um, you know, Summer of Love, and um, you know all that, and um, I've always been intrigued with you know, the Manson murders, so uh, he just handled it so deftly and, and um, so, so such a satisfaction to it, um, both artistically and, you know, musically, soundtrack-wise, musically, um, you know, the characters, everything about it, it just uh, hit me. So, I, no, that would be my favorite of all you mentioned, but all those movies are wonderful. You know? Yeah. Of course, that's all subjective, but I think you gave a good uh, recounting of, uh, of those and why... Uh, you listed him as you did, so he's just a great filmmaker. You yeah, know, he can, I mean, he's he can, left behind quite. You can give the, uh, you know, you can give the ranking and all of that, but the bottom line is he's he's a gifted filmmaker, and we're very lucky to have him in American cinema. And he also exposes us to many different styles and um, foreign film. You know, yes, he's, he's adherent to you know Japanese film. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, he's a huge the certain types guy. of '60s film genres. Um, you know, just, uh, and, uh, you know, of course, the Italian Westerns and the Marconi and and um, Leone uh, influences. And, you know, he's a movie historian. He's a cinema um, historian. Well, he's reverent about it, you know, and he, he you know, that's, he re- he respects his subject matter. To make so, him special. Yeah. So uh, that's our first podcast. Um, Thank you for tuning in. Tuning in. We'll hopefully we'll get better and better at it. We kind of did this without a lot of well, with no preparation really. So yeah. I want to thank my partner Liam. He, I'd like to thank my father, <laughs> the boomer. Yeah. Well, you know we're uh, we're hoping to make this uh, a regular thing and maybe have some guests as we get better at this. And and uh, and very thankful and thankful to our production crew, Michaela Absolutely. and John Libby. Uh, for their, uh, you know, for their uh, deft um, behind-the-scenes work, and uh, yeah, looking forward to the next time.
we haven't decided what that will be yet, but we'll come up with something good. Absolutely. So, Hope you have a great one. Maybe it's Twilight Zone. Who knows? That could be good. All right. That might be good. All right. Thank you very much. We'll see you again on Boomer and Gen Z.